Hey everyone, Yoram tried to blast my eardrums out of existence again, which, you know, um, I guess we're not going out to a lot of like noisy events, concerts, pubs and stuff right now. So this is a nice way for my eardrums to age naturally as they would in a non-COVID world. I think that's the intention. Like it's um, a simulation of like, I don't know, social sociality, socialization, something, something. You don't have raves at home? Why not, not a lot, no. Um, the cat gets angry at me, to be honest. Like, even when I cough or, Thinking like, speak cat, in right. slightly loud tone, the cat glares at me and then runs away. Yoram also just ran away. Yoram? Uh, <laughs> Yoram has left I, I had to. I had to open the door for the cat and let it uh-huh. in because um, it was scratching the door. It's going to be one of those recording days, I think, it seems <laughs> like. No, I was just saying We've that already had I an escaped baby and now an escaped cat as well. I had a lovely, um, a lovely rave the other night with my with my toddler son, um, because he suddenly realized that he really is into like techno and electronic dance music, and uh, was like jumping around and shaking his hands and everything. It was a lot of fun. Um, so I, yeah, I had a very loud, like not for very long, but I had uh, a little bit of loud techno music at home, which felt surprisingly nice to have like a relaxing um, sort of at home rave just yeah, to do something I, else i quite like like i live with a housemate and it's quite nice when she goes out and then i can play my terrible music loud and just like sing and dance around that because like it's different when you play it over a speaker than when you have it in headphones and even if they're not audibly judging your music there's always some judgment right <laughs> like <laughs> other people are always like a little bit judging your music and definitely judging my singing my singing is terrible as you guys all know um so yeah that's nice yeah and, uh and also at least for me i always want to be considerate like i would hate it if my housemaid would make like play a uh, very loud annoying music so i try not to do the same thing um and so yeah it's it's just different if you're alone you can be much louder and more annoying even if nobody ever tells you off um, when they're there it's still nicer to be alone and be loud but yeah but that was pretty much the highlight of my last week is that your baby can dance in techno now yeah i mean it's it's been so like almost a year ago now when we met up in march last year your baby was already able to dance to gangnam style like he could already get like a bit of a butt twerk in when we were and like in time as well which yeah, it was pretty impressive, and it also made me really aware, like how much natural rhythm we have, and the fact that well, like, not, not the two of us, like well, I mean, there's a thing humans that, in general. <laughs> well, that means that like our lack of natural rhythm is like an aberration that's like social embarrassment. Like we should have natural rhythm because babies obviously do. So our our lack of it is awkwardness on top of like it should be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, yeah, for me, it was the surprising thing that we play, we, we play a lot of music. Like we don't usually, uh, listen to a lot of like electronic music here. Um, although like I personally, I enjoy a little bit of like techno or rave from time to time, but usually we play like a lot of other music and he's never as excited as he was when we played like, like actually like one of the worst German acts that does like techno music, Scooter, uh, we play that. And he was ecstatic. Um, so yeah, okay. So good dancing skills, but maybe not such good taste in techno music. <laughs> yes, yes, I would say so. 
Um, my exciting news was that my my Christmas cards finally arrived this week. Like, I think everybody in the UK had really screwed up post this year for Christmas. How um, come? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know why. Like this little like virus thing plus a little Brexit thing. Um, so I kind of started getting some Christmas cards. Well, I got some some around Christmas, but I got some only now. And I got from both your child and also another one of our friends' child, like. Um, Christmas cards which had been being painted by the children and these are kids who are like between one and two years of age right um so I spent a lot of my my week I mean not a lot but like a significant portion of my week trying to like do a Mr. Squiggle like finding images amongst the abstract like um ink blot drawings mm-hmm. that these children had drawn this was just just saying like if you're having a particularly like slow covid week guys <laughs> this is something that you can do um with your friends with babies yeah and just look at baby made toddler made uh, ink blots sort of and try it like did you learn anything about your psyche no but that actually links to something else um i was reading the nature briefing today and let me see if I can find the tab because I'm pretty sure I showed this. I saved this. Um, okay, so there was a quote in the Nature Briefing today, um, which is from physicist Frank Vilsek, um, CZ in Polish. Yarm, you you learning Polish? Yeah, you that's it? a ch sound. Okay, Wilczek. Um, and <laughs> it is physicist Frank Wilczek discusses religion whether dark matter is axioms and the miracle of his noble winning work okay but i i'm in the mental state where i read whether dark matter is anxious and i had to pause for a moment and wonder if dark matter was actually anxious and i think that's a good assessment (laughs) of the world state now i was like maybe is dark matter like could be i mean we all are why not and so, yeah. and I don't know if it is the bad connection or um, my mind or your accent or a combination of all of them, but I just understood duck matter is anxious. So. Also, probably the ducks are also anxious. <laughs> I mean, guys, the ducks hang in are there. anxious tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, hang in there, everybody. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, like it's been a bit of a weird week because it's like completely rainy, which like we can't go out that much anyway. But it's like making it hard to go walking around. So. I am trying to, like, pick up more winter hobbies and just, like, you know, (laughs) projects, projects, all the projects. And earlier this week, I started to learn how to draw properly. I bought myself a new iPad and Yoram made a nice video for me showing me how he draws his images for our blog. And I drew a Parasaurolophus, which was definitely uglier than Yoram's Parasaurolophus that he'd already drawn. But you know what? It's fine. I'm learning and it's kind of cool. I mean, my my first drawings, they were also much less nice or I took forever until I was happy with them. And now I can be quicker and get to to a point where I'm happy with them much faster. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a typical learning curve, right? But I I personally found it um, amazing to be able to be now quick with drawings and like different drawings and um, so that when I actually need like figures or stuff for talks or something um often now instead of looking for a long time online for like the right clip art or or vector graphic or whatever i just quickly make it um and i found it incredibly liberating to have that skill now um and so yeah so i hope maybe that what's, will what's be the name of the program it's affinity design right that yeah. um yeah and 
it's, you pay like 50 pounds i mean the thing is it's like i bought an ipad and i bought the apple pencil so i i spent lots of money on this because that was my like little christmas treat to myself um but yeah it's it's super fun and you're right it's it's quite forgiving compared to drawing on paper and um, pencil and it's it's like quite a quick learning process i would say and easier to fix mistakes yeah it's fun there are so many tutorials out there as well and so even if you like if you want to try out a specific style you don't have to buy like watercolors and whatnot you can just like watch some person on youtube do it and then recreate it and have like an immediate little success there um so yeah i like i always wanted to draw like i always like on but on paper i i just made so many mistakes and the results were so far away from good that i just had no joy and knowing that i would have to like spend 50 pound on 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 paper just in practice until i get somewhere that's like okay in quality um yeah it put me off quite a bit and so yeah, i i really enjoy digital drawing yeah i do still like doing a lot of stuff like with my hands as far as the crafting goes but you're right there's definitely this this failure that can happen where you're like oh that's not how i imagined it coming out yeah. but yeah. yeah anyway uh winter 2020 2021 that's all about <laughs> drawing and crafting and and things yeah i i wish i would have the energy to do anything like that now i'm i'm really stuck in the monotony of um taking care of a child doing as much home office as i can and but okay children love crafts so yeah, you've just got to change the kind of crafts you're doing, right? I mean, he's still a bit too young to really do crafts. Like it's mostly, it's just you can a do. recipe for chaos. So you, like drawing is still like me drawing shapes that he wants to see. And so it's sort of fun, but it gets very repetitive. Like I have to draw a lot of trucks and excavators. And now I have to draw um, parakeets and cockadoo, cockatoos and um like birds in general and just have to draw a lot of birds and it's sort of fun but it's also very repetitive when you're like i would like to draw something else and then your little director there is like no draw me another one <laughs> another one and another one um so yeah isn't that when you just say if you want to have another truck draw your own truck he might be a bit young for that <laughs> um yeah he's a bit too young like he <laughs> he can't barely like color in the trucks that i'm drawing so um yeah it still will be a while until he can make like his own trucks and then i can just be like okay draw me another one now soon you'll be demanding yeah shall we do the science let's talk a little bit about plants Single. favorite plant my favorite plant today is a uh, cycads uh, do you know what a cycad looks like i know that it's not a plant yarm yeah it's a group of plants um depending it's a huge on group of plants right yeah but they have a very like typical style um they <laughs> i mean next week tegan presents moss <laughs> all of them <laughs> um, land plants no, but Sorry, I think there are some, at least from the Wikipedia article as I read it, there's like some specific trees that are called cycads and there's like the overall family or whatever. I, I don't know how like the botanical naming nomenclature works. Um, 
But you'll see why I picked the overall group of cycads now. But overall, cycads are these um, these trees that are very old um, and they look like palms, but they're really not palms. Like palms are very often confused with cycads, but they are distinct in some ways. But overall, like they have a, a, a trunk that goes up and then you have like a crown of leaves on top. Um, and so that's why they, on the first glance, they look like the, the same like palms. But um, they do have, cycads do have evergreen leaves and um, they have um, these pine-like leaves instead of like the big white palm leaves that you see um so they they are like pine needle shaped leaves and um they also don't make fruit like palms do but instead they make big cones which tells us already a little bit about the overall group of them they are not angiosperms which is fruit bearing um plants they are gymnosperms which are sort of evolutionarily speaking older um, and they are making cones instead, like pine trees, for example, would. Um, and um, today they are found mostly in the tropics and subtropics in the world, um, in places like Guam. Uh, but uh, interestingly, or, or what what makes these these group of of plants very interesting is that um, in the Permian, that's about two hundred and eighty million years ago, they were like super common. Like when there was still the massive supercontinent Pangaea, they were covering large areas of that. Um, and it is believed um, that back then the group was highly diversified. There were many different um, like members of this group, um, and that then died out um, to sort of. Um, during the, the mass extinction events that also killed the dinosaurs, it's believed that also a lot of the cycads, um, cycads died then. Um, so today we don't have the same diversity, although the, the claim about the diversity seems to be a little bit um, disputed because we don't have a lot of fossils from that area. Like The fossils are still quite rare, um, but uh, I think based on genetic evidence, if I remember correctly, they they assumed that there, ha there ha uh, was more diversity in this group overall. Um, however, you might now think, oh, these trees are old, they've been around since like 280 million years, are these living fossils? And the answer is no. Like they are um, related, like um, not not very closely, but sort of in the same uh, area on a tree of life um, as ginkgo trees. And um, but where ginkgo is like a total lama plant and didn't evolve in the last twelve million years and is like a living fossil um, and Maybe has been the same. Evolve. Like it's completely okay. like no innovation no new ideas, like the same old fart that it always has been. That um, means it was already perfect, maybe. No, it's, I, I'd rather think it's, it has no... Look, dude, I've seen a ginkgo. It's hard to argue that ginkgos are not perfect. Like They, they smell terrible. They, I, I, I'm not a fan. But um, cycads, on the other hand, they went through evolution through the last 12 million years. So they constantly um, adapted still. Still, it didn't it didn't protect them from being endangered. Um, today, cycads are actually um, uh, or <laughs> thing is hashtag not all cycads. Um, some of them are not endangered, but overall, um, there are, is specific put uh, conservation efforts specifically put into cycads um, um, because yeah, in many places they are endangered by uh, human activity. 
Do you want to say which ones aren't endangered? And well, I said not all cycads because um, I'm thinking specifically we have like something called a zamia in Australia, um, which is like, yeah, as you said, it's kind of a think of a palm tree, but then it doesn't have the br the the trunk bit. It's just like the fronds coming up from the earth, and. I remember them being around when I was a kid and I don't remember anybody being like, oh my goodness, that's super rare. So that's my amazing scientific anecdotal <laughs> evidence of like, this is not rare. I've seen one. Fun fact, um, some of the cycads that look like they're just coming out of the ground, they also have a trunk, but the trunk is underground. Um, mm. So it's like as if you would push the palm-like structure just into the ground. I don't know like how deep it goes, but um, from what I read, they they have like some part that's underground. Um, that's like the trunk structure. So it's not immediately roots from the crown, but there's like a trunk in between. Um, that's just silly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so these trees, uh, or the the, the the group of trees, I mean. So actually, I, I, I couldn't figure out the nomenclature. I couldn't it's an figure order. out. It's an order. It's an entire order. So kingdom, phyla or division, class, and then order. And then we have like a family and then a genus and a species. So you've got like an entire order here. Okay. Probably with three families inside the order, I think Wikipedia tells me. Yeah, I, I could. I, yeah, I don't understand how this system works. Um, so that's why I... Um, was just looking at them in general. So I'm just going to call it like a tree. <laughs> um, no, I mean the the way I found out about these. Like, I mean, I not I didn't wake up and one day was just like, oh, I want to have like this entire order of trees now in my in my um, focus of attention. Is I found two papers, two new re and two recent studies that were uh, investigating cycads. Um, right. Uh, the first one is um, so these these this. this order of trees, the cycads, they are dioecious, dioecious, um, so dioecious, I want to say, they are female tr uh, individuals and male individuals. Mm. Um, and I mean, this is not, not, not uncommon in the plant world. Um, but what is, yeah, you know what, what other awesome plant does it? Ginkgo does it. One of the most awesome plants, <laughs> the most perfect plant, some would say. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> it's 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 a fair point. Like I, I give that to Ginkgo. They have like one thing in common with a cool order of plants. Also, um, like you know how you said that Ginkgos smell. It's only one of the sexes which smell. So like the female trees, I think smell and, the, they, and they it's just the fruit. Like when the fruit fell fall down and they get crushed and then they rot, they give off this like horrible smell. But I had like <laughs> sorry. I just googled to check which of the the genders of the the tree smell. It is the female, but <laughs> there's a question: which one smell? And it says it's the females. This is not a sexist remark. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, the females are the only ones that bear the fruit, and therefore the rotting fruit smell. So that's why. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I, not I, sexism, guys. We had not far from my school, from my elementary school, we had a ginkgo tree. And um, I, I I read somewhere that they don't flower and bear fruit every year, but I, I distinctly remember that every year there was a, like a very long period where like the entire section of the street smelled terrible because of this ginkgo tree. So that's but that's also that's bad urban planning because you're supposed to only plant the males because of that, right? Like this is one of yeah. the. But at the same time, because it's a living fossil, like nobody wants to go and chop it down. Like apart from the people living in the area or going to school in the area also they're super beautiful they're the most beautiful 
Okay, carry on. Sorry. There was a new study that found... Um, so, yeah, usually when you have a cycad population somewhere, they are mixed about 50-50 male to female. Um, but because of uh, recent invasions of insect pests um, that predominantly killed off female trees, um, there's now an imbalance in some areas. Um, and that means that when you want to conserve... Sorry, can, wait, why, does the, why do the insects predominantly kill the females? Because of the difference... Sexism! Of, yes, uh, first of all that. And then the difference between the two uh, um, sexes of trees is, um, which is what the study found, that uh, male cycads, they branch more often. They often have a more branched structure. Often female cycads don't branch at all. And um, that apparently makes them more vulnerable to insect attacks, to certain insects at least. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Because then like, if you've got two branches and one of them gets infested, the other one can still be okay and you can kind of just like lose one branch. But if your core... Like, like humans can lose an arm, but not our, our core, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, um, cool. And so in this study, they... They found that this very simple sort of identifier of male versus female cycads, which helps um, to when you do field trials and countings and want to assess how much of the population is still alive, um, this helps to actually um, yeah, identify males and females and count them properly. Um, so this was the first study. And the second study that I found um, uh, found that the use of anti-transparents makes no difference for cycads. So... Yeah. And it's not about uh, deodorants, um, as I thought first when I read the headline. Um, there was like some weird, like, look, we put deodorant on a tree and the tree doesn't care. Um, no, but the point here is that when you can propagate cycads by cuttings, something that we use in the lab a lot, but also I think most home plant lovers do that, right? Like doing putting a cutting in water, having it set root and then planting it and then having more of a plant until you have too many plants, like two or so. Um and then um, in this study, they looked at the use of antitranspirants, which is um, like a group of, of chemical compounds that are used often in agriculture um, or um, breeding, where you change the behavior of transpiration of the plant. You know, right? The, the plant. So you basically stop the the water from coming out of the leaves, the, the leaf sweat of the plants. Yeah, and you do that by either just blocking the stomata, so the little openings in the leaves where water can leave the plant and gases can get into the plant. So you either just block them with some si sort of like sticky covering substance, or there's even some that act on a chemical level and they change the the um, biochemical composition in the stomata so that they close. Um, and they used both of them in a study and uh, to, to see if you could propagate cycads easier if you use antitranspirants. And they figured out that they have no effect whatsoever, neither positive nor negative. So um, it doesn't really matter if you have them in your protocols. You can keep using them or stop using them because they don't do anything there. Um, both studies were done at the University of Guam. And um, they are, yeah, th these two studies... Um, are just part of the conservation efforts that is uh, in Guam and other places in the tropics and subtropics um, are, are taking place uh, where like understanding populations better and also understanding how to propagate them better is a big deal when you want to conserve these, these endangered populations. Especially like with this huge history, to lose them now from human stupidity is just so sad, right? Something that's been around for millions and millions of years. Cool. Psychads. <laughs> yeah, that that was psychads. Um 
<laughs> your favorite plant. My, <laughs> my cats. My favorite order of plants. Diversity in the class. Science. Yeah, so I actually wanted to talk about two different women who are separated by more than 100 years and then link that to a kind of bias or effect. So it's a bit of a weird one today, but let's start. So the first woman I want to talk about is Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Have you heard about her before? No, I don't think I have. Okay, so Matilda Gage was a woman suffragist, and this is kind of what she's most known for. Um, She was also involved in um, rights for Native Americans, as well as being an abolitionist. Um, She was a free thinker and an author, um, and she is described as being one of the most logical, fearless, and scientific writers of her day. So she's not necessarily a scientist, but she does kind of did believe in and strive for many of the things that we hold dear as um, scientific thinkers and, you know, general believers in equality. So she was um, born in 1826 and lived till 1898. And in her lifetime, she had a major role in, in working on the suffrage movement. So getting votes for women and rights for women. Um, she describes herself as being born with a hatred of oppression and I think like throughout her life she really worked to try to prevent oppression or like limit the the oppression of the day which I mean in the 1800s not a lot of equality going around and she had like such firm kind of views on suffrage and feminism that even though she was around like in the 1800s a lot of her views work quite well in the modern context and in her day she was considered too radical by many members of the suffrage association so she was actually against the kind of suffrage movement becoming more conservative because the suffrage movement ultimately became this like kind of larger organization um which yeah it it had too much um, linkage to the kind of popular ideas at the time so it would she thought that this was like not great because one of the some of the ideas were you know m- doctrines of the church being linked in with the ideas of the suffrage movements which she was really against so um, she thought that having a mixture of church and state was a terrible idea and she also was very active in denouncing the church in upholding this doctrine of women being inferior so she was very much against that and she had like super modern views so even though she was like against abortion from the point of view of loss of life she also was very firmly pro women's right to their own body so um she said that enforced motherhood is a crime against the body of the mother and the soul of the child so like you know making women be pregnant against their will is not a win for anyone And she also says, um, yeah, I hesitate not to assert that the most of the crime of child murder, abortion or infanticide lies at the door of the male sex. So she is basically saying, you know, a lot of this is coming from men, which was it's extreme even now, I would say. And definitely in the time put her in a very extreme um, camp. But yeah, she was very important in the suffragist movement. Um, and did a lot in her time. So she was around from 1826, as I said, until 1898. Um, And an incredible woman. Now we're going to jump forward, still in the US, but jumping forward like 120 years to um, 1944 in July when Margaret Rossiter was born. 
Um, and Margaret Rossiter is an American historian, but she's specifically an American historian of science. Um, and she actually discovered her love not of science but of science history when she was in high school and she said she became much more interested not in the experiments that the scientists did but the background of the scientists who did those experiments and I think this is quite an important thing because there have been a lot of discussions recently and we did mention this um, some episodes ago when we were talking about some of the works of Angela Sini who um, does these, has written these two books. One is um, Superior, The Return of Race Science and one is Inferior, which talks about women um, roles. And Angela has said that you can't look at science outside of the context of the scientists who do the science because their stories also define what science is done and the bias that is attached to that science. So I think this kind of science history has a really important role, especially when it comes to understanding how we interpret different people and different groups of people in particular. And this is something that became a theme in Margaret Rossiter's research and life. So just as a um, quick background, she was, you know, an extraordinary achiever. She was a National Merit Scholar. She worked for the Smithsonian for a brief period of time. Then she did her master's, got her PhD at Yale, worked in Germany for a bit, went to Harvard, ended up in Cornell, and she got a MacArthur Fellowship. So she, you know, ticked all those highest achievement awards. Um, and just some notable moments in her life while she was studying at Yale, she sort of went to one of these informal department gathering with professors and students. And she once asked, were there any women scientists around here? And they were just like, nope, there's no such thing. Or any of the women who were there, they were just like here working for the male scientists. And so, okay, okay. Um, and then later on, when she was sort of talking about her own desire to study women who were involved in, in science, these kind of lost female voices of science um, in the history of science she was told by other scientists and in fact by women scientists at the time that there was nothing much to study in that realm so nothing of interest um, but she maintained this this interest and she actually uncovered hundreds of women who were like she, you know she looked through um, I think it was the reference work American Men of Science, which has now been renamed to be called American Men and Women of Science. And she found like hundreds of biographies of actual female scientists who have sort of slipped under notice um, in the field. So she gave a talk and eventually published a piece called Women Scientists in America Before 1920. Um, this was rejected by the very popular and prestigious uh, journal Science and also by Scientific American, but it was eventually published in American Scientist. Um, and the paper was really successful, like it got critical acclaim, but she herself like, and her studies were still kind of, they received a lukewarm reception from both the scientific community and the historic, like the historian community. So she's kind of straddling these two fields, science and history, and nobody's that enthusiastic, but her work is getting critical acclaim, right? And she kept on studying. Um, as I said, she was, you know, winning grants and, and winning awards. Um, and she then published a, a second volume kind of following up. So she had a, a volume called Women's Science in America Struggles and Strategies to 1940. 
Um, and this got, yeah, positive reviews in the New York Times, in Nature and in, in Science Magazine, um, which, as we said, had rejected her previous work. It happens. Um, and then she she won the, the Fitzer Prize and um, also published another um, work called Women in Science, which before Affirmative Action, which straddled from 1940 to 1972. So she was following up on this this concept that there were a lot of women in science they just hadn't been kind of uh, acclaimed and and celebrated and she also came up with um two different kind of concepts for discussing how women move like throughout science and also throughout the world so and other minorities as well so the first one is this idea of hierarchical segregation so she's talking about how as you move up the ladder women are kind of excluded you get less and less female as you move up and this is kind of um similar to but a little bit different from the glass ceiling because the glass ceiling is kind of a firm barrier but we see in science that women get lost continuously we call it the leaky pipeline quite often now that you get this like constant loss as you go up so this was a bit more this hierarchical segregation kind of fits that a bit better um, and she also talked about territorial segregation. So you get clustering of women um, in scientific disciplines. So like, um, I think we do see that quite obviously. One example I know is, is common is that like in medicine, women are expected to be more OBGYNs and they're not expected to be surgeons. So you have this kind of expectation that the women should cluster in that direction. But okay, so this is um, Margaret Rossiter. And I started off by talking about Matilda Gage, who was born, you know, more than 100 years before her. So how do the two link up? Well, Margaret Rossiter came up with an effect, um, which is where I want to go into our bias. So, Yoram, do you want to play the little <laughs> tune song? Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Yeah. So Margaret Rossiter came up with the Matilda effect. Have you ever heard of the Matilda effect? No, I with Matilda I always just think of the children's book by Roald Dahl. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite that. Um Yeah, so the Matilda effect is exactly what Margaret Rossiter was working on her whole life, which is a bias against acknowledging the achievement of women scientists whose work is like either just forgotten or in the worst case scenario attributed to male colleagues which is kind of yeah quite horrible i guess <laughs> yeah. um so rossiter kind of introduced this effect and also provided a few examples um yeah one of the the, the most prominent ones that she came up with was a 12th century Italian women physician called uh, Trotula, Trotta of Salerno, who um, wrote books. And after her death, they were just decided that those were actually written by male authors um, mm. instead. And if you go to the Matilda Effect um, Wikipedia page that we'll link to, there's also like a whole list of like actually still fairly modern women. I mean, the obvious example is Rosalind Franklin. Um, but there's like a whole list of different women who have had this kind of happen and, you know, continue to, to happen to them. And the Matilda effect is also linked to another effect, which is called the Matthew effect. 
and it's a little bit different, but it's it's kind of on a similar theme to me. So the Matthew effect is the idea that people who are already seen as being famous or well-known are more likely to be credited with doing work, even if another less known science scientist does the same thing, um, which is overall the idea that the rich get richer, right? So like if, if you already say Joram Schwarzman is a great scientist, then whenever Joram Schwarzman does Nobody work, we think, we think, well, that's, that's great. He should be published. And again, this comes up when we talk about things like the Nobel Prize, where you see that the big names um, always get the prize and it's not the grad students who do the work. It's the, the ones who have the funding and already have the, the prestige and the name in the field. And this is also, like, it's a really huge problem with grant funding in our field where like to get a grant, you need to have a big name on the grant. So you need to already be a big name or have like that connection to the big name in order to get the grant, to get the money, to even do the science, yeah. which... Um, so this is called the Matthew effect. So that's like two different things. The Matthew effect is based on the rich getting richer and the Matilda effect is based on not attributing work done by female scientists. And I am certain I can assure you that this can be extended to other um, minorities as well, but not attributing that to the, the women and instead giving it to like a male who's hanging around <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Do you know if if the Matilda effect is getting less pronounced with time? Like, do we get better at actually attributing the the the, the fame to the right people, or is it just that we don't like? I mean, these often come out in like in hindsight. Like Rosalind Franklin was only like decades later properly acknowledged for the work that she did, um, while at the time it was, to my knowledge, like more hidden. Um, what her contribution was. Uh, I just wonder if today, like, we're doing better or not. I mean, I think we absolutely are doing better in the, in the, at the very least, like, women can actually get official positions. I think a lot of the, the bias is still there, but we are trying to make structures to, hopefully, if, if you're, you know, in a good environment that are trying to like stop these I think we have the natural biases still I think we still have the sexism we still have the racism this, this is very apparent there's there's count, like countless studies showing that you know if we get two CVs for a professorship position and one of them's got a female name and one's got a male we'll still think all oh, the male is better and this is like a similar bias that still exists um, but I think that we are a bit more aware of that and definitely I mean, have things pr improved since the 1940s and the 1840s? Absolutely, yes. A hundred times, yes. Yeah. Do we still have a long way to go? Yes. Um, and I think, like, there's also, again, there, there are institutional things that we can do to try and limit this, like making sure that contributions are written down and, you know, it's clearly stated. Mm. But, yeah, I, it, it still exists. We, we've, we've all been in environments where different people get miss out on authorships or, or get you know free authorships this is definitely still prevalent so yeah. yeah but i think yeah i think it's getting better i mean yeah of course it's getting better. <laughs> like <laughs> hey like women can be doctors and can be hired like if we're going back to the time i mean matilda gage was fighting for the right for women to vote <laughs> so yeah. i can vote. yeah, yeah sure we're, yeah. we're i i just want to note to everybody that i bought yoram a book for christmas yoram do you want to say what that's about um, it's about a positive look on the world. And to be honest, I didn't read further than one page because um, then my, my son was like, oh, is this a picture book that we can read together? And it's not. 
And so I had to save it from his very destructive little fingers. Um, so I can't tell you like any of the good news yet, yet, but it's like a more positive look at the world. And I think also at like the history or at least yeah, like the, the, the way that we came to get where we are today. Yeah, it's, it's more just this idea of like things are improving in many ways and we still have a long way to go, um, but not not everything is getting worse all the time. Like that's yeah. kind of the, the message, I think. Apart from climate change. I mean, some things are getting worse, <laughs> but that's not like, this is why I gifted you the book because you're already aware of the things that it like, you're hyper aware of the things that are getting worse and it's good yeah. it's good to be vigilant but also no no i'm i'm, I'm very eager smile sometimes to, I'm, I'm very eager to like get a more optimistic or at least positive like frame the things that are positive as actually positive i really need that in my life so i'm, I'm very like eager to to read through that and i think also i mean when things suck in the world part of the reason they suck is that we as humans tend to have this kind of a mentality of things are the way they are they're not going to change so seeing that things have moved from being really really <coughs> shitty to being like slightly less <coughs> even it's can be enough to like like we can make change happen and maybe that's that can yeah. be part of it as well like yeah anyway i'm just thinking about like the matthew effect as well like uh, this is something that i've observed like from my personal like anecdotal evidence from time to time where people who had like group leaderships and funding and everything um you, you you tend to realize like how much more of that they have like in other places as well while at the same time you're talking to other people who are like look i'm trying to get like a junior group leader position somewhere but i just can't get the funding for that and um i legitimately hate so much the idea of having a professorship in multiple places and if somebody wants to come and explain to me why that's a good idea um yes please let's we talk about this every week so let's move on to some fun facts before yeah. we get like in full right now but like guys this do is better where the fun begins. You, this is where the fun begins you, this is where the fun begins um and the first thing uh is something that i brought uh and i wrote in my notes it's baby shark oh no 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 oh shut uh, up <laughs> because um there is a study that finds that the, the future might be too warm for baby sharks um they <laughs> they did a study on the epaulette shark um that is known for its resilience and they tested in, a, in an aquarium um the effects of water temperature on the fitness of the baby sharks when when they develop um from like i think like they, they have like an egg sac and then like they grow and oh they use goodness. up the resources in the egg sac and then they um they have amazing egg sacs have you seen shark egg sacs uh, yeah they 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 have they're like they look like aliens or something right they're incredible like they're just like go google that guys it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> although uh, some sharks are born live and some go into eggs it's like i yeah. don't know if it's half and half but yeah they, they look a little bit like um in in the game half-life 2 there's like black hat crabs that like attack you and jump at you and they look exactly like shark eggs it seems like a super obscure reference to me but i just might not be it's one of the most popular games ever okay, so obscure. um I hope some people will understand it, but it's like, yeah, it's like a little, or it's like a, a, a weird dark ravioli with like long, like long extended fins on, on each corner of the ravioli. I would say it's like a, a pine cone made out of rice paper, but black or like brown. 
Maybe, like are we looking at different a pine cone? Uh, yeah, there's like definitely a pine cone shape as pine well. Pine cone made out of seaweed. But yeah. Um, but anyway, so when when the water gets too warm, the the baby sharks they develop too quickly, so they use up the resources very quickly and sort of speed through their development. Um, but this higher speed um, sort of makes it, in a way, less effective in terms of forming like a, a, a fit baby shark. So when they actually are, I mean, it's not born; it's the it's the wrong word. But when they're sort of ready, hatch, when they, they leave, hatch, when they right? when they hatch. Um, they are weaker. Um, they are less fit um, in rising temperatures. So that's very concerning because the epaulette shark is known for its resilience. And I'm quoting here from one of the researchers involved. Um, it's known for its resilience to change um, and even to ocean, uh, ocean acidification. So if this species can't co cope with warming waters, then how will others less tolerant species fare, is what the researchers say. Um, so, <laughs> Do you know like when you have sometimes like just an evil thought come into your brain? My <laughs> thought was if they wanted to... <laughs> How would they cope? They would just evolve and leave the ocean like the rest of us did. That was the immediate thought. <laughs> Sorry, sharks. Unfortunately, they don't have the time, right? They, 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 they. I mean, overall, like it would be, like, I would be. I mean, if they stop playing overall the, like, computer games, they would be fine. <laughs> like, also, none of us would be happy about sharks on land. Let's be honest. Like, none of us want. Guys, this is the thing. If you don't stop burning fossil fuels, the sharks are going to have to evolve and come on land. We will have land sharks. That's not going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, yeah, that's... Um, the, <laughs> I, I, I mostly... I mean, it has nothing to do with plants immediately, but I pick it, picked it because it's baby. I had a baby shark reference in there. So I'm, f I'm sorry for the bad news, but it's also interesting research um, that you can look up with we'll link to it. Uh, I want to segue on from Yoram's not plant news to some other not plant news. I just put a link in Yoram. I want you to click on the link. Have you seen this article? So there was something that came out in Current Biology a couple of days back on the 11th of January. It's by Savage and colleagues. No, and the title is Lasso Locomotion Expands the Climbing Repertoire of Snakes. So snakes have a repertoire which allows them to get off land and climb trees. And now they have a new thing in their like bag of tricks where they can wrap themselves around and then hook the end of their tail onto their own like body. And basically, like shimmy their like they they form a closed loop and then they shimmy their way up a pole, uh -huh. forming this closed loop. And I really encourage you all to stop driving your cars, um, pull over, and click on the video on this because it's literally a snake going up a vertical pole, and it is terrifying. But also it's really sad because these these vertical poles are deliberately designed to be completely smooth to protect an endangered bird species, um, which is getting eaten to death by these introduced snake species. And they have this, you know, special snake proof structure where, you know, a thing that is basically a piece of string should not be able to move its way up a completely slippery metal pole. But snake found a way. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at the video and... Yeah, it's pretty much like circling around the entire structure and then tugging itself in like and forming a lasso loop and then just like shimmying itself up. Although like it's very slow. Um, I mean, it's probably enough to be successful to eat. I mean, it's birds. faster than a baby bird that's just hatched from an egg, isn't it? Like it's yeah. the whole reason birds put their babies in, in nests is because baby birds are useless. So like it has to be away from the ground. Yeah. 
I think it's pretty terrifying, honestly. But to be honest, like in the video, you see that like, they they also have like other methods as well already that they can shimmy up um, completely smooth structures. Um, so maybe we need something Yarmuth better than this. Then I mean, it's I'm I'm impressed. Like it's a it's a very cool way. But now, like in the video, I'm looking at like three or four different methods that snakes use to get up completely smooth poles, which, I mean, yeah, I'm just happy that I'm not a baby bird that's afraid of snakes because that's terrifying for them. Like, for me, not so much because I, I just see them climbing up like a lamppost and then it's just like a funny image seeing like snakes sitting on top of street lamps. Um, but for birds, yeah, not so great. I wonder what we could do to protect them. Like, maybe... This is the point. Like, this, this was the thing to protect them, right? Like this was the design, these smooth poles, and the snakes kind of just worked it out. Yeah, I mean, it takes them fifteen minutes to get up there. That's like long, but not too long. I mean, fifteen minutes—that's nothing. Like, what do you want to have? Like somebody full time protecting these birds? They go and get a coffee break and suddenly the whole bird babies are like, they've been annihilated. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty terrifying. And also like it ends, like the video ends on a freeze frame where it's it's like when you, <laughs> you have like a, a, a teenage comedy show and like in the end you have like the freeze frames where it's like, yeah, Paul moved on to become a professional professional wrestler or something. And here it's like a freeze frame. And then this wild snake climbed a smooth stovepipe installed to protect an act active Micronesian starling nest. The snake entered the box and killed two large nestlings and an adult. It was unable to swallow any of the birds due to its small size. Um, it's like the, so the it worst just killed free, them, it didn't frame. even eat them. Yeah, it's, it's the worst freeze frame you can imagine for the end of a, of a movie. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Um, terrifying but interesting video <laughs> speaking of a slow and terrifying death um one of my friends just sent me the other day this is like actually plant-based and actually plant molecular biology based which i believe is a first for this plant molecular biology podcast um my my friend sent me a publication that's a little bit old it's from 2011 but it describes two genes kms1 and kms2 um, and I just want to give it a shout out because they have cool names. Can you guess what KMS stands for, Yoram? Uh, kill many snakes. It's actually super close. Uh, kill more snakes. Killing me slowly is the name of the... So basically just when you knock these genes out, the plants die, but they just die slowly. So <laughs> it's called killing me slowly. But I always like... Um, gene names that actually describe the action of the protein not just the functional you know not like something kind of vague that's yeah. a family or you know so thank but you how very slow much does it kill the plant like is an arabidopsis dead within the month or so i mean what is time really Aram? it's all relative yeah because like i don't know sorry we're all slowly dying anyway I don't know, and actually I looked for um, pictures of plants in the paper, but it didn't have anything that was, like, the full plant, so I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, killing me slowly with this gene. Exactly. Like, you can't hear that name and not have the song in your head, which means you're always going to remember that gene name. Yeah, uh, until I, I forget, probably by tomorrow. Um, I, I also have a plant fact. Um, there is... Um, 
there has been a mystery for a very long time that even baffled Darwin um, back in the days. Because Abominable mystery. There's uh, some flowers that have um, two types of anthers. So anthers are the little like stick-like structures, like little antenna within the flower that hold the pollen. And they... We say I, like male sexy parts. Yeah, I mean they're, they're little, um, yeah, male sexual organs and they pro they distribute the, the, the pollen and the idea is that like an, a pollinator comes into the flower, um, is attracted by color or smell or nectar or whatever and then like the anthers, like they the, the insect touches the anthers and it gets some of the pollen on it and then it moves on and flies to the next flower and that thereby pollinating flowers, um, simple stuff. But the question was like, why does this flower have like two types of anthers um, that seem to be like wasteful because when you observe them um, at any given moment, only like one type of the anthers was actually effective and the other one was just like hanging around and not contributing much. And Darwin observed that and couldn't figure out what's going on there and just thought like it's a weird, like weird, wasteful result of evolution um and in this study now they figured out why that is um because they didn't just look at them at one point in time they looked over a longer period of time at them and what they saw is that actually these both types of anthers um or they they slowly develop um from one stage to the other from sort of an inactive stage to the active stage and they do that um, to sort of microdose the pollen. So instead of releasing all of the pollen at once on any insect that comes by, they're slowly distributing the pollen over a long period of time. And they also figured out why they do that, because when you distribute pollen on a bee, um, the bee has sort of a capacity for pollen. And if you overload the bee, the bee is like, oh, that's it for the day. I'm just going to head home and feed my, my larvae the pollen. Um, I'm just going to like brush it off my, my body, put it in my pollen sacks that I have, fly home, and then use my pollen there. And it's not visiting another flower, and so the pollen will never get a chance to actually go to another flower. So oh. from the perspective of the flowers it's a good idea to just give the, the bee a little bit of pollen so that the, the bee is like, oh, I'm not done here. I'm flying to the next flower, therefore distributing the pollen. And only after it visits a couple of flowers, it actually has enough pollen on its body that it flies home. Um, and by sort of staggering the development of these anthers, they managed to s slow down the release of pollen instead of like having all of them de developed and active at the same time and then having sort of a big load of pollen ready. Um, the same amount of pollen is stretched out over a longer period of time. Um, and that's a mechanism that they figured out in the study, um, which I yeah found quite cool because I had no idea that um, bees have this sort of capacity and um, that... Like this is a way that flowers. In this case, the flowers Clarkia cylindrica, that they are able to actually like yeah stretch out the delivery of pollen to insects. There must be like a fine balancing act going on there because I can also imagine if I was a bee and I visited a flower and I didn't get very much pollen, I would just not go to that species of flower anymore. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think bees are, are often more generalists than specialists. I actually am not sure about this. That. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm basically sure. it's entirely on the fact that you can get different kinds of honey. Um, so <laughs> I mean, in this case, it was not honeybee; it was like another type of bee, like a wild bee. Maybe it's more, yeah. So but that I, could be more specific, but I don't know. 
Yeah, but then I can imagine like if you didn't get enough pollen, you'd be like, mm, I'm just gonna like visit somewhere else. I mean, yeah. they they do get some pollen, like, but they don't just like get like a bucket full the very first flower that they visit, and instead they just get like enough no, that no, it's I, worth it for them. But that's what I'm saying. There's like there's like worth it balance where it's a, a trade off between the flower that wants to get less so it doesn't tip the the bee over its like field st- scale. And then there's, you know, the balance yeah. between keeping the bee around but not being the last flower that the bee visits where you, like, want it, you know? Yeah. It's an evolutionary arms race, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine so as, as well. Um, I found something via IFL Science, which is not something that's normally in our kind of remit because it's a publication that came out in Jewel Journal, which I had not heard of, to be honest. Um, Isn't that, like, a brand of vape pens? Possibly. It's Joule, J-O-U-L-E, not Jewel. Like, it's, it's like okay. kilojoule. So, it's an energy-based um, <laughs> journal. <laughs> for now, no one has, like, an official journal just for, like, vape pens and just, like, who, who busts the fattest clouds. Okay. So, it's by Xiaobing Xiong and colleagues, and it came out in January. I'm going to read the title. I have to admit, to me, this means basically nothing. The title is Direct Observation of a P to N type Transformation of Perovskite Surface Region During Defect Passivation dur- Driving High Photovoltaic Efficiency. Did you get it? It's something about photovoltaic efficiency. And I know that like the, the, the P to N transfers are something that happens in a solar panel when light gets on it and it makes the electrons go and makes energy. But that's as far as I understand it. Awesome. That was much more than I understood from that title. Um, the You're right. It's about solar cells and how well they work. Um, but the secret here is what has been added to those solar cells to make them work better. Um, and the secret ingredient is capsaicin. Oh, interesting. So they put it's chilies on it. Exactly. It's basically the the spiciness that comes from chili peppers, um, this chemical. And they they added this and apparently based on the specific electric, chemical, optical and stable properties of capsaicin, it is a good candidate and it seems to have worked pretty well to um, kind of prevent some issues that reduce current flow in solar cells. So it's it's like correcting a defect, I think. Um, But not really my field, but kind of cool that you can dose something with chili and improve it yeah i wonder how stable that is i I, that's always what i wonder when i hear about like technical applications of biological compounds because like a, a solar panel that you set up you want it to work for 15 years 20 years but in biology we rarely like isolate a compound and leave it sitting in the sun and expect it to stay intact for 15 years um so like I, I have no idea about this, but like sometimes I, I read things where it goes in the direction of just using something that you find somewhere in nature, use that in the lab and show like, oh, it's actually very effective. But then when you think about how you would actually apply it in real life, you quickly realize like, oh, it will be much harder. Like my favorite thing is these people who are extract chloroplasts from spinach, put them in some sort of matrix and say like, now we have artificial photosynthesis because we have photosynthesis outside of the plant. And like, you look, your chloroplasts, they will be fine for a day or two, but then they're done. So, no, you yeah, have to solve no. this yet. 
I mean, that's true, but this is not really the same issue because, like, what you're talking about is a chloroplast, which is has to be kind of living as an organelle to to be yeah, active. Yeah. But this is like a chemical, a molecule. I mean, Absolutely. it can degrade definitely, but like, it doesn't have the same requirements for life. And I mean, part of what you're saying is right in that they can use these compounds as the first step as inspiration and then you know make something that's a more stable version but has the same chemical properties which is you know something that we'll see a bit um just as another aside in the the ifl science page that reported this um they said that there was previous work actually also pouring caffeine onto solar cells so using um caffeine molecules as well so all of the food and drink can be used to improve solar cells, and that's basically the limit of my understanding of how solar cells work. Is that you can put <laughs> with coffee, I chili always imagine, and coffee, like they just knock over their coffee mug, and it spills over whatever experiment they're doing, and they're like, "Oh, it's actually better now." Um, I'm sure that, yeah. done. <laughs> I'm sure that's how it went down. Yeah. Um, so related to the the idea of using things in nature, or like repurposing them uh, finding a different use for them there has been a study that is making the news right now that that the main ingredients in licorice uh, is actually um, killing covid virus particles and Wait, i just what? want to be everybody to be very careful about this because this study is coming from like one research group that published it as a preprint so it hasn't gone through peer review so um and it was done in cell culture so um these are two things that are very far away from um science that's like done on on drugs that you can actually administer to people so what they showed is potentially interesting i mean it's a preprint it doesn't mean that it's wrong but it it hasn't been looked at uh, carefully yet by other researchers that are not involved in the study um and also it's done in cell culture and i just want before anybody like goes and shares the story about how licorice, the, the thing that nobody likes, will actually save us all from COVID. Mm, hold your host horses. Like I don't want to say like a hard no, but I would not share that story right now as a as a um, sort of potential treatment because it's so far away from being I think that. Now would would be a really good time to reshare the XKCD comic, which is um when you see a claim that a common drug or vitamin kills cancer cells in a Petri dish, keep in mind, so does a handgun. Uh, we'll put a link to that as well. But killing something in a Petri disc or in a cell culture can be very, very far away from killing something in real life. And that applies to the COVID virus as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to mention that here because I the, the problem about these stories and about the, the fact that it's published as a preprint that's not a problem. The problem is when people start sharing this without the context of it. And then suddenly it looks like there's a miracle cure there if you just go and buy like a bag of, of uh, licorice. Um, so, yeah, just be be careful about this. Um, what else? How many? Have you got a lot of other facts to go, Yoram? Uh, I, have, uh, I have a couple more, but I think I want to just give another sort of entertainment tip. Um, and that's a website that I found that's um, talking about cameras and lenses and how they work. And uh, I want to share this because um, what the author Bartosz Chinarowski uh, did there um, is creating a website where you have a lot of like interactive small elements that very gradually teach you about optics and how cameras work. 
um, but then goes actually very deep into details. So um, that's why I th I had a lot of fun playing around with it. And it's just like very small sort of interactive elements where you can just uh, change a few parameters and then you see how something responds to that. Um, and I found that a very clever website um, for in terms of like science communication, in terms of how to approach something as complex as optics and lenses. Um, so if you want to play around a little bit with like sliders and see what happens to light when it goes through different like um, media with different properties, like from air to glass to air and stuff like that, um, go to the website and play around a, li a little bit. You might that learn something. That sounds cool. I remember like in um, final year school physics, we had to understand all of this light bending stuff and it just drove me crazy. Like I really, I don't have a visual imagination. So people would explain you know, here's the physics and what it does, but I couldn't see that happening in my mind. And I just found that really disruptive for trying to remember and learn. This is, yeah. I found it always incredibly hard once you get like multiple lenses together. Like I could figure out like the path of a light beam through a lens, but then you would like start stacking lenses and then they would have like very different properties and it would just like, it would get too complicated. I would have no idea anymore what's, what's, what's going on. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that's actually like this website helps with that. Like it goes, it like starts from just like focal length and aperture, and then actually goes into like the physical properties of light as a wave and how it like is like the speed of light is different in different media and how that influences then the breaking index of stuff and so on. Um, so really complex stuff, but shown in a way that at least I found very accessible and interesting. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's I, I think that's what I have for today. Um I wanted to talk about websites based on that. So um yeah, early today I was talking about Matilda Gage and the reason I found out about Matilda Gage is because there's a website called Gage. Um it's gage.500womenscientists.org and I actually um, I knew about 500 women scientists but I hadn't really looked into it and then I went to a live Instagram event um, just when they were doing kind of a, a live discussion about what they're, what they're about and Gage is basically an online resource um, for journalists, educators, policymakers, and others and I'm reading from the website now seeking the expertise of women and gender minority STEM professionals um, so basically, if you are a female or a gender minority, a woman or a gender minority in STEM, you can kind of create a profile and you can write what your expertise is and also what you're looking for. You know, if you're interested in doing science communication or talking to journalists or you're looking for people to collaborate with. And then from the other side, you can also go and search for people. So you can search um by country or by discipline or you know some expertise you can put like random obscure you know sea monkeys or some some word in there and you can find um a woman or a gender minority who has that expertise and you know part of this is to create a space where women and gender minorities can network and get together but it's also to go against this um thing that we're still seeing today where you have a panel and every single member of experts on the panel is a male or you know you have a an interview and all of the the scientists who are being interviewed are white men so this is trying to kind of encourage people to to look beyond the traditional white european old male scientist and and seek other opinions. Um, 
And the example that they used is um, there was one of the women who was saying that when she was visiting for a conference, she was interested in looking for childcare for her child while she was at this conference. And she actually searched the region and found a female scientist who had put as one of their keywords that they were a mother. And she sort of then reached out to that person and asked about what resources were available in that region for mothers of young children. So this was kind of one of the examples. I think there are some obvious limitations here. Um, there's always a risk when you're asking minorities to kind of self-identify. Um, it's a bit easier when it comes to sort of women um, because it's it's anyway sort of visually there. But like if you're talking about, you know, um, like gay or like uh, sexuality minorities in countries where that can be dangerous to identify that, like you have some limitations. So like there's, there, there are some some issues with this approach. Um, but I think there are also some benefits of having this resource available. Um, so, yeah, I haven't looked too much into it, but it sounds kind of interesting. And that was just how I heard about Matilda Gage in the first place. They've they've named their website Gage after Matilda. So they're trying to push against this effect, the Matilda effect, where women are not allowed to get as much representation as men in science. Um, I think that's one other big thing that we have to mention. Uh, Yoram, you've probably seen this as well. So there was a paper that came out, I was going to say a couple of days ago, but technically it comes out in five days' time. These publication styles blow my mind. Okay, so there's a paper that will come out on the 19th of January, but also is already out and already exists. Um, it's called Cellular Autofluorescence in is magnetic field sensitive. It's by Ikea and Woodward. And basically the authors found that certain uh, molecules within the cell, cytokinins, um, which autofluoresce, so they sort of produce light. They, they receive light and then send back another light signal. This light that they send out can be modified by passing magnets over them. Mm -hmm. And this is the first solid evidence that at a cellular level we can inter like interact with magnets like that the cells can sense and respond to magnets and this is really important because we know that some animals bats and birds are navigating around the earth using the earth's magnetic field so this is kind of some nice firm evidence that is linking like at a cellular level how this like the mechanisms behind how this could possibly happen um and i want to give a shout out to the i think it was science daily um yeah science daily covered this by saying that new research shows how x-men villain magneto's superpowers could really work <laughs> <laughs> which is um and of course they then go into discuss that this is you know a crucial step in understanding how animals from birds to butterflies navigate using earth's magnetic field i'm quoting there but i just love that their introduction to the story was to go to magneto that's some powerful science journalism there i would say <laughs> yes yeah that sounds very good although like i i immediately like my, my my internal alarm bells go off because i'm now thinking does this give people who sell you magnetic armbands to charge the energy of your aura um, sort of a, a scientific evidence or sort of a, a way to misinterpret science? 
so they can still sell you the armbands and be like, look, there's science that shows magne- magnets do stuff to our cells. And therefore, if you wear this armband, like your core chakra gets like supercharged. I mean, I I have definitely seen, I mean, from years ago, like tens of years ago, maybe even people who were interested like and were actively putting magnets into their fingers, like they were yeah. um, surgically implanting magnets so that they could feel magnetic fields theoretically. And this, you know, should then be linked, you know, to make themselves more bird-like. Um, I don't think it worked. I don't think it did anything. I think what they, I, I know that from like body modification stuff, right? Um, and I think they get sort of a tingling sensation in the finger when, when like the actual rather big physical magnet physically moves in the finger. So they can, they don't feel the magnetic field of the earth, but when they get close to another magnet, something or a piece of metal, like something slightly tugs at the fingertip and they can sense that, um, which is not really what a pigeon would do. Um, <laughs> but it's like... What would pigeon do? It's <laughs> an important life question. <laughs> yeah, the, the article I was reading... Um, I'm not, I'm not going to find out who it was, but it was basically the story of somebody who was doing these body mods, and then the the final line was like, it didn't work, they took them out, or something like that. It was like, this was not useful in any way. Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, think there was an expectation that technology would move forward faster than it did, and we would have, I mean, we have everything on our smartphones now, but there was this idea that we'd have, you know, our credit cards and our identity in chips within our wrists instead of on our phones. And as it turns out, that hasn't happened. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know that people like put NFC chips um, like already like also. Wait, what's NFC? Ago. That's like the the one that you have, for example, in your, when you just have a tap and go credit card. Oh yeah. Um, like a, a chip that is powered by an external field. So essentially, it's like a coil of wire that takes up energy and then powers a tiny chip and sends a signal over a very close uh, short distance. And I know that people like implanted these on different parts of their their bodies like usually like in the arm or in the neck or somewhere with the idea that they would have then a transmitter in their body that they could use for example to open a door they could just walk to the door wave their hand over a sensor and the door would open to them so this is the thing i remember then having like it must be in the 2000s like literally having these discussions of okay but then people are gonna have to chop your arm off to steal your wallet wouldn't it be better if they you know i remember these terrifying ideas that were behind these these body mods yeah and it's just like they're they're incredibly impractical so i mean as a like it's a fun thing to think about this and play around with this but it's in no way practical more practical than just like having a little plastic card on you that you can replace and that you can destroy and that you can like give to somebody else it's everything like that so much more practical than just having like an implant in your arm um and like if you change jobs like they can take away your plastic card or do you have to like do something to the implant in your arm i don't know like uh i think the one i want the most is the kind of google glasses one or the one where you have that video in your eye and i've seen the black mirror episode i know it's a terrible idea because you can watch through everything that happened and you get obsessed with the past but in the lab I was terrible at writing down notes and often on my sample tubes, I would just write sample number three. And then three weeks later, I would have, you know, four different sample threes from different weeks and I would have to throw things out and start again. So like that, that kind of Google glass thing, I'd be pretty happy with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just use my smartphone for that. I would write all the details on the bench with like the rack with the tubes 
on it and take a picture of that and then like wipe off my bench with ethanol so that the writing would be gone i could continue to work but i mean that cool but me technically terrible, like i mean it, i i can't say like that it actually worked like it was also a terrible way of documenting stuff but I didn't need eye implants to have a terrible. No, okay, but like also, firstly, also you've got your phone in the lab, which you're technically not supposed to have. You're touching your phone with your filthy glove hands while you're taking your gloves off, which is not practical. If you had, so in my idea, these are not glasses, but they're like safety goggles, which would also mean I would actually wear my safety goggles in the lab, which I never did, even when I was using liquid nitrogen because I was lazy. Like, I mean, if anybody who... You know, I did absolutely all the time. I was very good. I always wore a lab coat and clothes shoes and pants. Um, but like if I had goggles, safety goggles that also recorded everything I was doing, hell yes. Yeah, it could be useful. But at the same time, like, yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a long tangent. Just like thinking about scrubbing through some things when I did like long recordings or something and just like scrubbing through them, finding a bit of information that I know isn't like a 90 minute recording of something is so tedious and annoying. But then probably we would also have like very smart algorithms. Yeah, but also is it more annoying than have to like re-extract that RNA sample? No, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> cat fact so i wrote a very well researched piece of cat information that um i had prepared for days uh and uh i i found a new study where they created a new reference genome for cats um they created a high quality genome um from that's based on on one specific cat called cinnamon um and cinnamon suffers from dwarfism um so it has like it looks very very cute but i think oh i think i know this cat um yeah it's like a it's like a munchkin breed um and uh, they created the, ref the, the reference genome from, from its DNA, compared it also to 54 other additional cat genomes uh, from a project that's called the 99 Lives Cat Genome Project. Um, and doing that, they identified a new gene that's involved in the dwarfism of the cat. Um, and having this high-quality gene uh, genome is always an advantage. Like Molecular biologists are always very happy when we have good quality genomes available because that means we can do... Um, a ton of downstream experiments from that, from like understanding how some genes work to knocking out some genes to figuring out some like links between certain effects that we see, like diseases and what they could be, how they could be linked to uh, traits in the genome. So um, this is what they're also hoping for with this new high quality genome that it will help with like treating diseases in cats and veter veterinarian um, applications, but also for things um like understanding the how we bred cats in the past how um they became uh what's the word tamed like uh made into pets um there's the word for that that i lost domesticated how uh, yeah. we domesticated cats how we domesticated but cats and what happened on a genetic level is something we can study from these high quality genomes and also like wildlife conservation stuff like um related like uh, uh, like probably a cougar or like some other like endangered cats maybe um like cat species in the wild they their genomes won't be 
um, so very far off from the domesticated cat genome. So that could also help uh, when it comes to wildlife conservation. Although, like, I mean, this is what people who made the the genome they always like look. This will help everywhere, but it sort of does. Like, it's very useful to have that resource. So that's a study that was published now in PLOS um, Genetics. I think that's it for our facts for today. Um, Yoram, what do you want to say to the people? Um, you can reach out to us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. I'm at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. On Instagram and on Facebook, it's me at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, we also have a website where we are publishing um, two articles every week. That's at plantsandpipettes.com. Yeah, so this week we had one plant that was about Agathis plants, which is an ancient um, genus of plants that have been around since the dinosaur days. They seem to have survived the KPG extinction event, so this big, like, probably meteorite that killed all the dinosaurs, and Agathis just kept on chugging away. It survived that. But there's a new study that came out in Communication Biology that shows that even though the plants survived, probably their insect pests did it too so we have fossil evidence showing these plants getting chewed away by insects that's one of the stories and the second stories is a reveal from 2020 which was the discovery that this super weird species of desert plant which looks a little bit like a mixture between kind of a broccoli spike this like mm-hmm. knob with like mo- not broccoli um a brussels sprouts like this kind of stick with many brussels sprouts coming off it and then it's part that and part like succulent and this is a desert plant that is actually related to Arabidopsis thaliana. And they look nothing alike, but somehow they're related. Um, so we also read a little story about that. So those two are on the blog from last week. Yeah. Um, and if you like uh, like our show, you can always rate us on iTunes or wherever you can rate podcasts. And you can tell your friends about the show. That would always help. Yeah, and if you want to tell us something that we said wrong or give us suggestions of things that we should be saying, uh, please do get in touch with us. Uh, The opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Goodbye.